the free for all roundtable round two on round two today, Mississauga City Councilor Dipika Demerla is here. Mike Schreiner from the Ontario Green Party, he's their leader. And Tamara Cherry with Pickup Communications, author of The Trauma Beat, a case for rethinking the business of bad news. And Tamara, I'll start with you. Speaking of bad news, we, okay, so two out of three guys who were involved in a gunfight, allegedly, that killed an innocent woman. Um, two of them have been rounded up, but also arrested is somebody who works at a safe injection site who may have aided and abetted them after the shooting. We don't know all of the details, but I'm curious about your thoughts because this has a lot of people saying, well, that's because safe injection centers are trouble and so are their employees. No, I mean, that is absolutely absurd. I To that, I would say that life would be so much easier to navigate if good things were only good and bad things were only bad, but that is not life. Life is nuanced and very few other places is that in very few other places is that on display as as much as as it is in in initiatives around harm reduction. I know that firsthand because my sister is very involved in harm reduction here in Saskatchewan. So actually, while searching through my notes um, from something completely unrelated this week, I came across my notes from the sentencing hearing of what many would consider one of the most shocking shooting homicides in Toronto, if not Canadian history. And I was reminded from my notes of how during the sentencing hearing, the shooter turned to each of the bereaved family members in the courtroom and gave really sincere looking, tearful apology and how he was sobbing and that each of them were sobbing. And it was a very emotional moment. And I'm not saying that the people who perpetrate these crimes don't deserve to be punished or that society does not need to be kept safe from them. But we need to understand that by and large, people are not born bad and that good people sometimes do bad things and that that is not reflective of the places that they necessarily are. So I'm just, you know what, actually shootings happen all the time in impoverished neighborhoods in Toronto and community housing complexes. I've been to many, many of them over the course of my career. And this is where people live by choice, not by choice, but by circumstance. And when shootings happen there and involve people from there, we don't stand up and yell, we need to tear down the community. We say, how do we keep this community going in a way that is safer for the people that need to be there? And I just find it interesting, some of the conversations that have been happening around this safe injection site in, in the aftermath of this awful homicide. Mike Schreiner, I know I haven't looked at it yet, but my text board is going to be full of people saying, <laughs> yeah. Tamara Cherry saw on crime. Well, I don't think Tamara's being soft on crime. I think she's being realistic. I mean, here's the bottom line is this employee needs to be held accountable by the justice system and that process is in place. If a TTC employee was involved in assisting a shooting, would we say, oh, we have to shut the TTC down now? Or exactly. if an LTBO employee was involved in aiding abetting a criminal, would we say we have to shut down the LCBO? So, you know, this is a devastating tragedy. I've been inspired by the way the community has really rallied around the family and just dealing with their grief around this tragedy. But the bottom line is, is safe injection sites, community treatment centers, harm reduction, save people's lives. Mm -hmm. They help better manage people's mental health and addiction illnesses and can be gateways to treatment. Uh, and so shutting them down is only going to make the situation worse for 
for users as well as the community and is going to lead to even greater losses of life. So let's put this in the horrible tragedy in the proper context. Let's move to home building because that involves a lot of files, including the whole green belt debate. But Dibika, I'll start with you on this. A uh, new survey of home builders finds 22% of them are canceling projects. And I would wager the reason they're doing that is not that they're not going to make any money. It's that they want to wait for even more desperate times and make more money. And I guess this shows us how the profit motive, not that I'm going to go all communist on you, but the profit motive perverts the construction of homes. But how do you see it? Well, you know, this is an issue that I've been trying to raise for a long time, John. So thank you for uh, bringing this up, which is, you know, as a municipal counselor, uh, municipalities have become the punching bag, right? So why is there a housing supply shortage? Because municipalities don't, uh, uh, you know, approve quick enough or don't approve enough, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is, and this is the truth, which is, you know, it's a very layered problem. And I'm going to use Mississauga as an example. At this point, we have about 80,000 uh, housing units that have been sort of approved, but only about 40,000 of those are being built. There's another 40,000 that are not being built. In my own ward, for instance, I have one townhouse complex that was approved before I got elected in 2018. So it was, I think, uh, approved sometime in 2015. Nothing built yet. Nothing. So there's example after example of municipalities having, you know, uh, approved uh, and said, okay, we're good to go, go ahead and build this. And developers not building, they're sitting on it for whatever reason, uh, to some extent, maybe to make greater profits. Maybe some of them truly believe they can't make a buck in this environment. Whatever it is, the reality is that there's a whole ton of housing permits that have been issued and that are not being built. So it's really nice to see this report quantified. I was shocked at the number 20%. Mississauga, it's almost 50%, you know, got 80,000 issued and only 40,000 being built. So clearly, uh, if you want to build those 1.5 million homes, uh, something's got to change. Okay. And it's not municipalities. And Mike, as I turn to you, I want to salt in one extra question. And that is, I've heard from a number of people in the last two Two days via text to insist nobody but the media cares about the whole green belt issue. I have to think that you have access to information that might confirm or deny that. Oh, people are outraged about the premier's broken promise not to develop the green belt and the fact that you know three land speculators are going to cash in to the tune of eight point three billion dollars, and the rest of us pay the price for it. I mean, if you travel around, even my community here in Guelph, which isn't adjacent to the Greenbelt, you see signs all over on people's lawns saying, you know, Premier Ford, keep your Greenbelt promise, keep your hands off the Greenbelt. I see them in communities. I'm, I'm knocking on tours in Kitchener Center, see it everywhere there as well. Uh, I've been attending a number of rallies and even people coming up to me saying, you know, I'm a lifelong conservative voter and I'm outraged over, over this issue. So this is much bigger than the media the opposition parties. This is penetrating to people on the ground. And on the housing side of things, I think this particular issue around uh, interest rates and how that's affecting developments uh, just highlights the fact that almost every study out there has said 
We have plenty of land already approved for development. We don't need to open the Greenbelt for development. There are other issues affecting the housing market, one of them being interest rates, which is a real issue. And, you know, I think when the Bank of Canada, and I realize politicians can't direct the Bank of Canada, but, but my gosh, you know, I don't think the people of this of Canada can deal with another interest rate hike, especially when the biggest drivers of inflation right now are housing costs and interest rate increases are making that worse and food inflation, which is being driven by international events, not by what's happening here in Canada. Okay, I want to jump to uh, another couple of topics because we could obsess about housing forever. But Tamara Cherry, without pigeonholing you as my law and order person, it is mm -hmm. something you have a degree of expertise in. Um, are you surprised at the idea, and do you think it's a good one, of a class action suit over carding in Toronto? I mean, I, I, I suppose I'm surprised by it, given that, um, you know, we've already really analyzed the the quote-unquote carding issue uh, many times over the years. There's been a bunch of recommendations from Chief Justice Michael Tulloch, uh, who did the review back in 2019. Um, and, and we've even heard the story of the woman who is named as the representative uh, plaintiff in this. So I'm just, I'm surprised because carding doesn't exist as it did back when it did, and usually class action lawsuits, particularly in, particularly in Canada, um, aren't driven by financial motivation, but are rather driven by, you know, the need to affect change. So I guess I'm not really clear on exactly what change they're trying to affect through this class action lawsuit. Yeah, exactly. Deepika, we stopped carding in 2015. Why are we doing a class action about something that happened in 2011? I mean, all fair questions, but you know, I, I think that every time a case comes in front of the court, it's another chance to really test hypotheses and things like that. You know, it's very important, like this lawsuit says that as people stopped without reasonable suspicion of their involvement in criminal activity, I think that's going to be tested and that's, that's good for all of us. It's good for the police. It's good for all of us to really, you know, define and test like what is that you know, what's the threshold for reasonable suspicion? I'm not an expert like Tamara, and maybe it's been defined multiple times, but I think it's always really good to shine a light on these things. And I like what the class action suit says at the end, which is, uh, and, you know, Tamara pointed to it as well. It's not so much about money, but about bring, uh, ensuring that all of the reforms that the province had probably committed to uh, when it comes to policing are actually uh, implemented. So if, if that's the end goal, and she says it's about problem solving and finding solutions, I don't think there's a downside to this uh, class action. Thank you all. Good to have you. Tamara Cherry, Mike Schreiner, and Deepika Demerla. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.